0: Well, please grab your Bibles and open up with me to Psalm chapter 51. This morning, we are going to be reading all 19 verses. You can find that in your pew Bibles on page 560, or you can follow along with the words behind me on the screen. God's word says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I was probably around seven or eight, in fact, about the same age as my oldest son, I remember a time when th- there was this card game that was hip, I guess, for eight-year-olds. It was called Yu-Gi-Oh!, Uh, It's kind of in the same streams as uh, Pokemon, if you're familiar with that. But I remember one of the rules that my parents set was was reasonable. It was, I was not allowed to have Yu-Gi-Oh cards. But at the time, all my friends had those cards. And so I felt left out. And I remember somehow I got my hands on some Yu-Gi-Oh cards. And I hid them. I can actually remember the very spot in my bedroom where I hid those Yu-Gi-Oh cards. And immediately... I felt a tremendous weight of guilt and shame, not because I had Yu-Gi-Oh cards, but because I was disrespecting my parents. And I remember it went on for about three days. And for three days, I had no rest. I was tremendously anxious that they would find it. And I was truly ashamed for what I was doing. And after three days, I finally went and got those cards and threw them in the garbage. Again, It was not because I had Yu-Gi-Oh cards that I was sinning. It was because I was disrespecting and dishonoring my parents. And I came under a tremendous amount of guilt, even for something as juvenile as simply having some cards. May not seem like a big deal. What's the big deal? It's just some cards. But for me at that time, when I was eight years old, I came under that tremendous guilt that caused me not to rest for three full days. I'd think about it at school. I'd think about it on the bus. I could not rest. As Christians, when we live in unrepentant sin, whether we realize it or not, that sin steals our joy, our peace, and our rest. As Christians, God calls us to be repentant in our sin. And when we are not, something is actually happening in our souls. When we look at our passage this morning in Psalm 51, It's written by a man who has been truly convicted of his sin and the sin that he is convicted of is far more egregious than simply just hiding some Yu-Gi-Oh cards in his bedroom. Some of you might have already noticed I intentionally skipped the introduction of this uh, uh, Psalm. I wanna go back to it now if you look above verse one and I encourage you to keep your Bibles out. If you look above verse one, we have the introduction we're introduced to who writes this psalm, but we're also introduced to why he wrote this psalm. The introduction says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So we know that this is King David who wrote, wrote this psalm, who also wrote many of the other psalms. And I'm going to censor this last part just for a little ears a little bit, but you can read it on the page. It says, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he, David, had his interaction with Beth, Bathsheba. Now, I find this passage to be a tremendously powerful passage as we consider what it means to be repentant before a holy God because we have some real insight into an incredible reaction to someone who is called the man after God's own heart, his reaction to his sin and the condemnation and the weight that that sin put on his shoulders. We know from 2 Samuel that King David was... In his palace, which was elevated, and he could look down from his rooftop, he sees Bathsheba bathing. He lusts after her in his heart, which, of course, is tremendously sinful. But what he does next is far more deplorable. He then desires her as his own wife and essentially has Uriah the Hittite, who is Bathsheba's husband, murdered on the battlefield. The king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, sins in a display of what can only be described as tremendous selfishness. Disgusting act of tremendous selfishness. Now imagine with me the burden of guilt and shame that would come from an action like that. I think for us it would be tremendous. But we see, if we were to look at 2 Samuel, at first it doesn't seem to bother David that much. And I think, personally, I think the reason is, is because he was so enamored with his his prize, with Bathsheba, that he ignored what he had done to get her. And I think we as humans actually have a very uh, capable ability to talk ourselves out of what we have done talk ourselves and justify the sins that we commit. We see David doing it. We steal because it's okay. That million, billion dollar corporation's not gonna miss it. In fact, they do evil too, so it's okay if we steal a little bit. We use coarse language. Maybe it's at work, it's okay, it's just work. I won't use it at home in front of my kids. We get drunk, but I'll only do it once in a while at a party. I won't even drive home. We can easily talk ourselves and justify our sins. And I think we see King David do that in Second Samuel. And it really took God sending Nathan the prophet to look him in the eyes and say, thus says the Lord, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And he says, you have killed Uriah for his wife. This causes David, by God's mercy alone, causes David to realize what he has done, that he is the man who sinned before a holy God. And so the context of Psalm 51 is of a man who is enormously burdened by the guilt and the grief because of what he has done. But here's what we need to understand. In that conviction, David still had a choice David could choose to bury his guilt. He could choose to hide his shame. He could choose to justify his actions away, hide from God and act as if this had never happened. And being king of Israel, I think he could have gotten away with it, at least in a physical sense, not a spiritual sense. But his other option, of course, is he could repent. He could confess what he did before a holy God, that what he did was truly wicked and deplorable, and bring that to the Lord. One of my questions for us this morning is how many of us, and of course, myself included, for whatever reason, whether it be pride or shame or embarrassment, or if we're honest, just being numb to our sin, how many of us choose the first option? We'd rather carry around the weights like Pastor Dave had in his jacket because we don't want to expose them to the light. Again, whether that's pride, embarrassment, or just not even realizing we're carrying around all this weight. To stay shackled, we'd rather stay shackled to our sin rather than receiving the joy and the peace that comes when we repent of that sin and accept the easy yoke and the rest that Jesus offers us in Matthew 11. We'll actually come back to that in just a second. We see in Psalm 51, King David clearly chooses the right option, to repent before his holy God. The Holy Spirit using Nathan convicts David of his sin, and David is not only just like, well, you know what, I do see that something's wrong here, I better repent. Beyond that, he is truly heartbroken over what he has done. He truly comes under the weight of, full weight of conviction. He has a contrite heart, which means to be truly broken over his sin. We see that from the very first words in this psalm. David cries out to God saying, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy. David knows that he does not deserve to receive mercy. We'll see that in just a second. He knows that he doesn't deserve to receive mercy, yet that's what he cries out to God for. And mercy is God withholding the punishment that David does deserve. He pleads with God. And David does something important here that we need to understand. In his pleading, in his repenting, David doesn't appeal to the good works that he has done for God. He doesn't appeal to what he has done in the past, what he can do for God in the future. He doesn't appeal to his ethnic heritage that, hey, God, I'm your chosen man. I'm the king of Israel. I'm part of your chosen people. Rather, he appeals to God's very nature as a loving and merciful God who blots out the transgressions of his people. And there is a sense of irony here as we look, again, back to the context for this chapter, which we see in 2 Samuel 12. God uses, again, Nathan to convict David through, through a story. And uh, this is, in one sense, kind of a fictitious story, but is talking about David. But David thinks it's, he's talking about some other person. And it's a story of a rich man who has a lot of sheep and a poor man who has one sheep. And that one lamb means everything to this poor man and when the rich man gets a visitor instead of taking one of his many many sheep and, sacri- or and and preparing it for a meal for the visitor he takes the lamb of the poor man and ironically david becomes furious and he says in his anger as the lord lives the man who has done this deserves to die as the lord lives the man who has done this deserves to die and of course nathan's famous words to daniel are you are the man the irony of course here is that david pronounces his own judgment the king of israel has pronounced a death sentence on the king of israel you are that man and so the only thing that david can do at this point is to cry out to a holy God, have mercy on me. So let's go back to what I said at the beginning. Imagine with me again the burden of the guilt and shame and the death sentence that David had proclaimed on himself. Imagine that burden upon his shoulders with me. In that day, the clarity of God's redemptive plan was even less clear for David as it is for us today in the New Testament context. But even then, David recognized that it was only God that could save and redeem him and forgive him. We see see David confident in the promise that his God is merciful and loving And he's a God who will forgive, who will redeem, and who will restore David. King David finds true rest in his God. He doesn't find true rest in that he ignored his sin and pretended everything was all right. He didn't find true rest in making uh, up for it by just, I'll just be a better person. He didn't find true rest in justifying it so he could live with it. Though his sin was great, David found rest from his sin, from his condemnation, in the fact that his God was greater. Though his, by his own omissions he deserved death, he found rest in that God forgives. My brothers and sisters in Christ, the reality of those who have been called by Christ and have put their faith in him is that we are forgiven of our sins eternally. That's past, present, and future. Your salvation is not in question here. But the reality also is that we will continue to sin. And we will, at times, live in unrepentant, undealt with sin that will steal our joy and our rest and our peace in a holy, good, and gracious God. One of the most exhausting aspects of our life is to live in unrepentant sin. Hopefully most of us aren't guilty of what David is guilty of, killing a man for his wife. But we are all guilty of sin. And I think all of us at some time in our life have felt that burden, that shame. Not dealing with something we know we must deal with, we ought to deal with. Again, maybe it's stealing, maybe it's pornography, maybe it's drunkenness or drug use, maybe it's lying or foul language and coarse joking, maybe it's the idolization of our work, maybe it's the idolization of our vacations, maybe it's the idolization of our possessions. The list goes on and on. But the great call of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is not to rest in your ability to deal with your sin, but to rest in him. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight 28 through 30 says this. This is one of those passages that I love to close my eyes and listen to. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You will not stop sinning in this life. But that does not mean that you should just accept your sinful inclinations and desires and live them out. Paul in Romans chapter 6 says, may it never be to do so is to deny who we are it's to deny our identity it's to deny our soul rest in Christ in our culture today one of the greatest goods uh, ethical goods is to discover who you are what is your identity Your college kids, that's what's going to be thrown at them when they go to college, discover who you are. And according to Western thought, your identity is found at the intersection of many aspects of your life, whether that be your ethnicity, your culture, your socioeconomic background, your family history, your skin color, your gender your religious affiliations, and the list goes on and on and on. And the greatest good, according to Western society, is to untangle that mess to try to figure out who you are. Well, here's the good news from God, from our Bibles. The good news is our identity in Christ is profoundly simple. We see the answer to our identity beautifully and wonderfully given to us and i would say mercifully given to us we see it in the first answer and uh, question and answer of the heidelberg catechism what is most important about me as a christian is that i am not my own but i belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior jesus christ The most important part of who you are as a Christian is you are God's. You belong to a loving, merciful God who loves you and wants to take care of you and wants to walk with you in this life. And if that is who we truly are, then not only ought we give our sins over to God, And confess them and repent of them but we also must recognize that Christ wants us to he wants us to bring our sins into the light of day he wants us to rest in the good news that the gospel has overcome your sins he wants you to walk in forgiveness and restoration with him Not in your own strength, but in his strength. And so my final words of encouragement this morning, if there's any sin in your life that's undealt with for whatever reason, I I encourage you, bring that to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't allow it to sit there and fester. Don't allow it to steal another moment of your joy and your rest that your soul longs for. Like David, appeal to God's mercy. Confess your sin, ask for forgiveness, and expect that God will walk with you and restore your life. And let that lead, we didn't kind of get into it today, this passage I think deserves about a dozen sermons, but let that lead you to the worship of God because you will see his faithfulness in your life. And lastly, I encourage you to consider confessing your sins to a beloved friend or family member who loves jesus who will appropriately keep you know between you and and him or her whatever is going on and who will be committed to walking with you in whatever is going on and restoring you from that sin god has blessed us with a body of believers who love each other let us bring our sins into the light and i recognize that is a tremendously difficult thing to do That is what we are called to do. Accept the free gift of God's grace. Rest in Christ Jesus. Rest in the knowledge that he loves you, cares for you, and holds you in his hands. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are a God in control. But Father, we pray that as we do sin and we recognize we will continue to sin in this life, Lord, that we would not allow embarrassment or shame or just plain apathy to, let, to, to cause us to bury those sins and keep them hidden away. But Father, may we bring them into the light confidently before you, knowing that you love us and care for us and will help us deal with it. May we not live with this burden that steals our rest in you. May we find joy in, in the peace that comes with forgiveness and restoration. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen.